0: Hello, my name is Dr. Jim Doty, and I'm the host of the Into the Magic Shop podcast, where we explore the mysteries of the brain and the secrets of the heart. My guest today is David Destino, who's a professor of psychology at Northeastern University, where he directs the Social Emotions Lab. He's also a New York Times bestselling author, and his most recent book is how God works. And in this, he discusses the nature of ritual and how ritual affects the brain. So I hope you enjoy, and I'm looking forward to this conversation today myself. Well, welcome to the Into the Magic Shop podcast, and my guest today is my friend David Destino, who's a psychology professor at Northeastern University. And as well as just talking in general, one of the things I'd like to talk about is his new book, How God Works, The Science Behind the Benefit of Religion. You know, it's interesting because, of course, as you well know, uh, almost 80% of people nominally say they have a religious practice. Maybe you can just give an overview of why you decided to study this area.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, For me, it, it almost feels like coming full circle. When I was an undergraduate in college, I was trying to decide between being a kind of history of religions major, uh, or a psychologist. And I ultimately decided to be a psychologist because I felt I could run experiments and get some data <laughs> rather than argue about what seemed to be, or debate about intractable topics. But the questions that always fascinated me were the same, right? How do we become good people? How do we become more kind and compassionate? How do we connect to other individuals? And so through my career as a psychologist, I, I spent a lot of time studying those and, um, it became clearer and clearer to me that each time we'd find a new strategy, a new life hack, a new technique to help people become kinder, more connected, more honest, whatever, I'd say, aha. And then I'd look around and I'd see every other religion having this as part of their (laughs) rituals or practices. And for for a psychologist, that's kind of humbling because not only are they using these techniques that I just discovered, or my colleagues just discovered, but they've been using them for thousands of of years, and sure, they couldn't, you know, run randomized control trials or scan people's brains to understand the neuroscience behind these. But yet, they had intuited practices that uh, that help people live better lives and meet the challenges of life. I'd say the thing that got me most into this mindset, and probably the thing that that. I first learned about, you know, your work Jim, and and, and C care was we decided to do these studies on on meditation. You know, if you read the New York Times or whatever it might be, you know, you see a lot of stuff about meditation, how it, you know, changes people's brain structure or it helps them become more creative or it increases their standardized test scores or lowers their stress. All of which is great, but the underlying purpose of it was really to reduce the suffering of all sentient beings. And so we decided to actually study that. And what we found was that after, you know, brief periods, you know, a few weeks of meditation, people actually became more compassionate. And so what was compelling to me about this is religions tell people you should be good, you should be kind, you should be honest. But within the practices, they're also giving people the tools to make that so. And if you look at the data, what it shows is that saying you believe in God doesn't predict anything. But engagement in spiritual practices, people who do that, live longer, healthier, and happier lives. And as a scientist, to me, that tells me there's something there. And we don't have to agree on the theology or where it came from, but there is some wisdom in these practices that I think we should all explore to learn how to make life better for people. We started to do this with meditation, but it can't be the only spiritual practice that works.
0: Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. It's interesting because I look at uh, religious practice, if you will, as a ongoing experiment over thousands of years, which narrows uh, that uh, which works to that which doesn't work. And it can involve all sorts of practices. Uh, You know, one of the ones that, uh, you know, I found interesting is the Jewish tradition of not eating shellfish, right? Which is sort of... Why did you do that? Well, you can put it into the context of religious practice, but at the time it was due to uh, certain illnesses associated with those fish. But my point is that all religion is an ongoing experiment and we're at the end of it. And uh, obviously, as scientists, oftentimes we have a degree of hubris about what we do and why we do it, when in fact religion has for thousands of years actually created rituals that are extraordinarily beneficial to people.
1: No, that's that's exactly right. You know, I think you, you hit the nail on the head. We scientists tend to have a little intellectual hubris here, and we need intellectual humility. Um, you know, I don't think we're going to learn that much about the nature of the universe or the biology of disease from religion, but when it comes to helping people meet the challenges that life throws at them, grief and loss, finding meaning, bonding to each other. It would be strange if thousands of years of of thought on this didn't have something to to offer. And I think we need to be willing to to look there, right? It doesn't mean we're going to give up the scientific method. It doesn't mean we have to believe that these practices come from on high. They may or may not. The the, the point that I uh, say again and again is No one can prove whether God exists or not. Even Richard Dawkins, the the foremost atheist around, will say he can't be sure. He sees no evidence of God, but he can't be sure. So let's not argue about that. Let's look at these practices. And if you want to believe that they were divinely inspired, fine. If you want to believe that they're the result of experimentation, as you say, people figuring things out that work, fine. I can't answer that question. But let's look at what they do and what knowledge we can take from them to help people. No, I think that's exactly right. And again, I, I think all of us,
0: our goal, uh, whether it's religious based or science based, is to figure out
1: techniques that improve people's lives. Mm-hmm. That's right. And you know, you you were mentioning the Jewish rules of kosher, but but to me, you know, another great practice that I see coming from all religious traditions, but I think where where Judaism actually has it really well put together is, is the issue of, of grief and loss. So if you think about grief and loss, right, it, it's, we all face it, unfortunately, at some point in life, someone we care about dies and passes on. Um, what's one thing that all religious rituals encourage us to do? It's to eulogize the person who has passed, which seems really normal because we do it all the time. But if you think about it, it's kind of strange, right? If I just lost a job I loved, or if my wife who I love dearly decided that she wants to divorce me and leave me, I wouldn't want to spend a lot of time thinking about how great that job was or how great my (laughs) wife was because the pain of that would make it worse. Yet, we do this when someone passes. And there's wonderful research by George Banana, who's one of the world's leading bereavement researchers, that shows people who can solidify positive memories of the person who has passed are the people who have less grief and less rumination, right? They're the ones who move through mourning in a more resilient way. But if you look at Judaism and sitting Shiva, which is the mourning ritual of Judaism, there's also all these other elements that are built in, right? People have to uh it, it's a mitzvot which is a sacred obligation you must go and visit the homes and spend time with the people who who have who have lost someone and that's providing instrumental support you you bring them food you help them out that's another big predictor of who moves through grief resiliently they cover mirrors in jewish homes you also see this in irish wakes and in, in hindu morning ceremonies why well there's a theological reason but there's psychological research that shows when you look into a mirror whatever emotion you're feeling is intensified. If you're feeling happy, you become happy, or if you're feeling sad, you become sadder. Well, what you're seeing here is by covering the mirrors at a time of mourning, you are in some ways reducing the self-focus that increases grief and rumination. People sit on low stools or on the floor, which if you've done this for long periods of time, you know it causes pain in your back and your knees, and they get up and welcome people when they come in. There's new neuroscience research that shows mild onsets and offsets of physical discomfort actually reduce rumination and grief. And so what you're seeing is this packaging together of all these little elements leveraging our psychology and our physiology, to help us deal with challenges of life, and I think it's incumbent upon us psychologists to look at that, right? If we looked at this, we would have found this stuff out earlier. <laughs> so why don't we? Why don't we do that?
0: Yes. Well, you know, it's funny. Uh, I recently started something called the Global Compassion Fellowship, which we do once a month, and we usually pick a topic, but we add particular rituals to it. Mm. To in some ways enhance or better connect with people. And, uh, you know, that was my intuitive take. And I think of course your book, uh, reinforces that because there is power, you know, I think in, uh, these practices and another question though, I wanted to ask you is, um, I think you mentioned in the book where religious people often live longer and, uh, uh, I read a study, and I can't remember the details of it, but it actually said religious people and Republicans, and they <laughs> <laughs> and they they had less. Well, it was two parts. One was uh, they had less anxiety about the issue of um, their pending death. They didn't have the same existential crisis because they knew that quote unquote they were going to live uh, beyond this life. And then the other aspect was that this certainty also decreased present anxiety, uh, not necessarily related to existential crises, and had a very uh, significant uh, positive effect, especially in regard to thinking that they were part of something that was special and that they had, if you want to call it ritual, that connected them and therefore created strength in a community.
1: Yeah, I mean, there, there, there is a lot of data suggesting that that belief um, reduces anxiety, both existential and day to day anxiety. As you said, you can even see this on a on a neuroscientific level. There is evidence that people who have stronger belief actually show less response in kind of error related centers of the brain so when when you are when you make a decision and you're worried it's going to go wrong and it's wrong you, you kind of have these these emotional alarm bells to use a very colloquial term that that goes off um, and people who have uh, more faith tend to have less, of that happen. In fact, it's, it's the same part of the same centers that if you're on Xanax, that, that, that targets, it reduces activity in those areas of the brain. And the idea here is, is what it really does is, is is it's, it's reducing decision fatigue. So it's not making people, I don't want to make you think that it, people are, people are, are, are unintelligent or aren't thinking, well, they are, right? They're, they're trying to make the best decision they can, but what it then does is, is prevents you from engaging in endless simulations of, but what if I made the wrong decision? What if I should do this? How can I do it better? And that type of decision fatigue, we know is very stressful to people. And at a certain point, if you can say, I've researched this, I've made my best decision, now I'm, as as older generations would say, I'm giving it up to the man upstairs or to God or whatever it might be, that does generate some sense of of calm. I mean, you see the same thing in, in Buddhism, not to a higher power, but to a sense of I accept that I cannot control everything that what will be will be and, and it's that same kind of thing and so it clearly does um, does reduce anxiety both existential and and, and present cases. Now there were some people right who who said just to pick up on on the point you made about people of faith and Republicans. So uh, Steve Pinker made this comment back a few months ago where he said he said you know belief in an afterlife is is a malignant delusion that is causing evangelicals to not get covid vaccines because they don't care right they're just going to go on um and that's just that's just not right if you look at the data people who actually i mean there there is less uptake of the vaccines there but it's because of political ideology not because of belief on average what you see in in belief is people who who have stronger belief actually take better care of their bodies they they drink less they uh, are less involved in substance abuse. There's even evidence uh, in a dose response way of people who, who go to uh, services regularly, you see less deaths of despair. So I think there is a beneficial element, definitely.
0: Well, I would suggest though, and I'm sure you appreciate as an example, if we look at the blue zones where people routinely live to be over 100, uh, the greatest uh, determinant of that isn't necessarily diet or uh, uh, other factors, but the greatest determinant is strength of relationships and social connection. And I think these types of practices really promote social connection, which therefore decreases uh, stress and anxiety because you feel that you're, if you will, in the same boat as other people and that there will be helping behavior if you need it.
1: That's right. I mean, if you look at the blue zones, right, they typically have a few things in common. They're they're strong social support, often strong religious connotations as well. They eat plant-based diets. They get a lot of time outside, right? In in the U.S., one of the big blue zones is in Loma Linda, California, which is the the Seventh-day Adventists, right? And the question is, but how do you separate what's going on there? Well, you know, in the book, I, I talk about one interesting way to look at that is there's this famous uh, set of studies called the, the the Rosetto studies in Rosetto, Pennsylvania, and um, where they ate a terrible diet, right? These were Italian immigrants who, who who came to these the hill towns of Pennsylvania, and they couldn't really get olive oil very easily. So the Mediterranean diet went to the side, and they started frying all their meatball in lard, which is not a, not a good way to do it. But what you found is that they had much lower levels of cardiovascular disease. And the uh, physicians who, who did the study on this group, they actually said ultimately what they thought really mattered was the strong adherence of all of these folks to to Roman Catholicism—not that Catholicism is more protective than other religions—but it formed the rhythms of their days and it brought them together for all of these these celebrations throughout the year, and it gave them a sense of strong social support in a way that is more than just being a member of a club. Mind, and you know, I mean, that's that's one of the criticisms of this is well couldn't you get the same benefit from being in a club? And no, the, the most recent data really from, uh, this is data from Tyler Vanderwill at Harvard Center for Human Flourishing, suggests that, yeah, there's benefit of socialization, but socialization within these faith practices, the benefits are even stronger. And I think it's because they have these added rituals, like you're adding to your organization, Jim, that help form that cohesion more than you would just have from a club. And, and definitely. I, I definitely believe that that's one route by which these 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 faith practices um, increase people's health.
0: Well, you know, I, I agree with you in general, but if you create your club, which has very specific practices, right, where we meet every Saturday, we, prior to riding our bicycles, we gather to hold hands and say, you know, this is uh, our ritual today. And uh, I think all of those uh, can create Sort of a pseudo religion, basically. No,
1: I, I, that that's right. I mean, I mean, what you're doing in your cl- not that it's a club, but in your organization, <laughs> no, it's, it's, a cl- it's, <laughs> it's a club. It's a club. Is having those ritual elements that cause that increased bonding, but that's different than like your bowling club or something right, or right, your PTA, no, right? That doesn't have those ritual elements to it.
0: No, no, I, I think that's exactly right. But it is interesting how. These practices seem to have a, I won't say a single source, but definitely a connection uh, between all of them. But let me ask you a question. Uh, I'm sure you're familiar with the study by uh, Batson about the uh, Good Samaritan, which is, uh, of course, this one where the seminary students, who nominally, you would think would be more following of the typical uh, dogma of Christianity, which is to help another, Yet, when they're in a rush, they don't do it. And so uh, the query is, I guess, here you have people who nominally are very religious, but when they're stressed, those same practices uh, sort of fall out the window, if you will. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, well, this is why I think, I mean, so taking one step back as a behavioral scientist, right? So, uh, you know, I'm not a scholar of religion. What I'm doing is, is taking basically what we know about how the mind works and trying to understand how that works within a religious context. Any behavioral scientist will tell you that setting a goal, here the goal being kinder is one of the things you're supposed to do if you're a Christian or most many other religions, people will fail at if they don't have the tools to make that happen, right? So if you think about we all set our goals on on New Year's uh, by... The second week of January, twenty-five percent of resolutions have gone by the wayside by the end of the year. Only about eight percent have been kept all the way through. Um, so, the question is: we all set the intention, but when push comes to shove, when we're in a rush, we don't we don't do it. And this is why I think that having the tools is important. And and I think in Christianity. So one of the tools that we've, we've seen that makes people kinder is, as I said, is, is meditation. And in Buddhism, you see this quite often used. In Christianity, there's not really a tool for that purpose. Now, there are Christian contemplative traditions, but for whatever reason, they've kind of been kept within the cloisters. They haven't, been, they haven't come out. And so I think what you're seeing there is, is the lack of a tool to make it happen. Now, Christianity has lots of other tools that we can talk about to make people more honest, more fair, things like prayers of gratitude, et cetera. But I think what the religions do in their spiritual practices is give us tools that leverage our mind and our bodies. And what you can see here is is, is differences in which tools are made available to people.
0: So, and this may sound strange, but can you imagine actually creating your own religion Based on what you found here, to sort of create a maximization of benefit.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I mean, in some ways, right? That's every religion that's out there is there because someone thought they had a better way. But I think what, what you're asking is 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 there a better way based on the science of what works? Um, it's an interesting question, I think, because if you know, in my book, the point that I that I do is I, is is I follow people along the road of life from birth to death, all the challenges we face. And I look for the convergences in religions, in religious rituals, how they all help us deal with with bonding with our children, becoming more ethical, dealing with midlife crises, health crises, et cetera. And then I try to point out, well, in this case, as I said before, maybe in, in terms of mourning, judaism's package might be a little more effective than other packages now i'm saying that based on what i know about the science what would be really useful and i hope people begin to do is to actually study that in an empirical way could you then based on the results create the 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 maximal (laughs) package of of religion you might but the problem there in two right is there is an element of of belief belief does matter, and and that raises another point that that I want to touch on, which is, when I talk about this, people often say, "Well, Dave, are you, you know, what about the issue of, of of cultural appropriation? That is, is it not respectful to these religions to take their practices? Or on the other side, I'm the Catholic. Why do I want to do something that's Hindu, even if it does work better? And I, I want to say I'm not in any way arguing for cultural appropriation. Never would I say you should take the symbols and the sacred texts and the prayers of one religion out of it. But because all of these religions kind of share certain elements to them, I think they're a product of being human. There are, there are, there are wisdom that all of these have found that we can then take. So one of the things we we know is that if you move in synchrony with people, right? We have data that it makes you feel more connected to them. You see that in lots of rituals. Why can't you? take that. We know that when you chant or when you meditate or when you recite the rosary, it, it slows your breathing rate, which slows your heart rate, which sends a signal to your brain that that you're more calm and open to connecting. So we can take that and use it with different symbols. And so I think that's the benefit to come of these. Can we find the the most maximal benefit? I'm not sure there is one for everybody, but it's an interesting question.
0: Yeah, I, I would be interested in sort of uh, seeing that. Now, but it is how you comment on belief because, in some ways, there is the physiology associated with these types of religious practices. But at the end of the day, I think belief ends up being extraordinarily powerful. And if we look at, as an example, the placebo effect or mm-hmm. some of these other effects, uh, it's this powerful belief that uh, actually affects your physiology.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, I, people often hear the word placebo effect and, and they think of it as, oh, person, you're, you're gullible, that, that's kind of a derogatory term, when in actuality, there's been estimates that about 30% of the benefit of any medication you're taking comes from your belief in the placebo effect that it will work. And so to get rid of the placebo effect actually actually is, is, is a problem, but what makes it work even better, and Jim, I'll be interested in, in your views on this as a physician, is to the extent that, that you trust and feel that you have a connection with the person who is providing the healing, which is why in traditional cultures, a lot of healing rituals begin with the person, the shaman, whoever it might be spending time building a relationship with you. What that suggests to me is that we might be able to increase the benefit of any medication or any surgery we're giving to people by having a better doctor-patient relationship, even working not only just making them feel more comfortable but kind of downstream through the placebo effect. No, I think
0: that's right. Uh, uh, there are a couple of things. What, what I find interesting is the acceptance of medication that is marginally more effective than the placebo effect. Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? mm-hmm. Yet it's sold, and we spend you know billions of dollars on these things uh, when they're really not that much more effective. But getting to your point about physicians and interaction, you know, from my own experience and uh, some of the work that we've done, it's interesting that as you probably know, we now have an electronic medical record. We have very short interactions with the patients. And in fact, oftentimes the patient is met by a healthcare extender who's a nurse practitioner or a physician's assistant. And it's been fascinating to watch myself in that it's hard to develop a a relationship with the patient, as an example, when you're typing on your computer as you're talking to them, or all the information's been gathered by somebody, you walk in and say, "Yeah, you need to have surgery." Thank you. But to me, that is not the practice of medicine. That's the practice of uh, using the patient as a profit center. But that's a whole other.
1: <laughs> d- yeah, no, but, story. but you're right. What we're doing by the design of you know having you facing the computer and typing in all of these things is is we're actually. Limiting part of what makes the placebo effect and every effect work. And every pharmaceutical company, you know, I, I've heard placebo researchers say this. It's like the placebo effect is their enemy until they're approved because they want to show that their medication does more than the placebo control group. But once it's approved, it's their best friend because it provides <laughs> part of the benefit of of the drug. But what you know what you're saying here is that we're actually designing the interactions of most physicians with patients to make whatever benefit might come through the placebo effect limited. And so in some senses, right, yes, it seems more cost-benefit, but maybe it's not, even in just terms of the numbers game.
0: No, I I mean, as an example, I have found, and studies have shown, like if you lean into the patient, if you touch the patient, if actually you stay off of your computer and you look them in the eye and you make them feel that you have all the time in the world – This has a huge, huge benefit to the patient because any time a patient sees you, they're filled with anxiety, right? This unknowing. and, uh, And being able to calm that down actually is profound. And this is one of the reasons why studies have shown that when patients are asked, what did the doctor tell you? Most of them can't remember. Even though, and this is a study that was done with informed consent. You know, the doctor had a script. And he went through the script to make sure they had informed consent. Then they would ask the patient later, uh, "Did the doctor talk to you about complications or about the procedure?" And you know, some over seventy percent said no, he never mentioned it. Yet they video recorded these, and it showed it. But the reason is, is because the patient is so anxious about this, they're not really listening to you, right? And uh, uh, what we have found is, if you prep the patient appropriately, they will have less need of postoperative medication. They'll uh, leave the hospital sooner. Their readmission rate is decreased. And so it's really showing compassion, care, concern, which, again, uh, connects you with the patient, which then results in this uh, significant
1: physiologic effect. Mm -hmm. And, you know, here again, right, we this is something that can be learned from traditional healing ceremonies, right? Mm -hmm. This is an important part of most traditional healers and and, and shamanic medicine is is that relationship. The other place you see this now is, you know, the the interest in psychedelics has been growing dramatically. And, you know, there's wonderful data from Johns Hopkins showing that people who take psilocybin, 75% of them will say this is been the most profound sometimes even spiritual experience they've ever had and of course ayahuasca psilocybin have been used in indigenous culture uh, cultural um, rituals for centuries but when they're used there with the shaman it's the shaman's job to keep you safe right by engaging in 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 the chanting of the icaros before it, it alters your breathing it calms you down because when you have that moment of ego dissolution right when when the psychedelic hits it can be beautiful or it can be terrifying and by having these social elements of the ritual it's kind of scaffolds the brain so the scaffolds the psychology of it so that you're in a position where you feel calm and safe when this happens and your your trip is is much more likely to be better and afterward they talk with you about this and the shaman guides you and helps you make sense of it if you're just you know if you're in Palo Alto and going to a little ayahuasca ceremony with your hipster friends and you don't have that scaffolding, um, you know, a higher percentage of this goes badly. Not all of it. it can still be quite good, but it, it can go badly. And again, there are these social elements of healing rituals and healing practices that we need to pay attention to. And if we don't, we're doing that uh, to our own detriment, I think. No, I think that's right. And it gets back in some ways to what you've been talking about, which is,
0: These rituals have been combined with these practices of a connection, uh, either a commentary or interacting with you prior to the event, and also even actually giving you suggestion as to what you will experience. And so instead of going in with anxiety and fear, you go in with a calmness about you that uh, helps dictate the uh, positive acts, aspects
1: of uh, these experiences. I agree with that, but I think you know it also goes way beyond just just anxiety. And one of my other favorite examples is uh, if you look at kind of happiness in life. This is this is work from people like like Laura Karstensen who's at Stanford with you and other individuals. What you see is that happiness tends to bottom out around the time you're in your late 40s and 50s and then begins to rise again. And actually, you know, interestingly, there's work in other work that shows the use of antidepressants is actually the inverse. (laughs) It's (laughs) highest when you're in your 40s and 50s and then goes. And what happens is, is that as people past like 65 or so in life, they change their focus on what makes them happy from trying to get ahead in life, build skills, build status, et cetera, to the things that bring true happiness, which are finding connection, service, spending time with with people you love. But it's not really an age difference. It's really a function of what Laura calls a time horizon, which is how long you think you have until, until death. And what she's found is that during pandemics, like during the SARS pandemics in China in 2003, or now during COVID, the age difference disappears. Suddenly, even young people are starting to think, like, you know, oh, I should, what am I doing worrying about getting ahead and getting a new skill? I should be spending time with people I love because who knows if I'm going to be here. And if you look at religious rituals, Things like uh, Ash Wednesday in, in Christianity, which is when the priest puts ashes on your head and says, you know, some version of, you know, from dust you came to dust you you shall return, a reminder that, that death lurks for all of us. Or uh, during Yom Kippur, Jews recite this prayer called the unatana tokef part of which says, you know, who will live and who will die, who will die before their time. In the coming year, who's going to die by sword, by fire, by flood, by plague, which is something that, that hit all of us this year. Uh, it's a reminder that death may come sooner for any of us. And what happens when people feel that is they turn toward the things that bring true happiness. In life which is social connection which is care which is which is service toward others and these things tend to happen in christianity you have ash wednesday before this period of lent which is a time to take stock of 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 what are you doing with your life in judaism it's that rosh hashanah you said that and then again at yom kippur which is a time for taking stock in life and i think it reminds us without having to face the fact that we might die due to due to old age or due to a plague like COVID-19, what are we doing? And, And is it, is it the way that, that we should find happiness in life? And again, I think here it's a, it's an intuition of what reminders of mortality can do for us and why we should do them more frequently to make sure we're living our life in a way that we, that we wouldn't regret.
0: No, I think that's an excellent point. And I think that, um, This is an issue of uh, younger people now seeing the potential finality and uh, what they should be focusing on and how actually in some ways it's have, I think, uh, will, is having and will have a huge uh, effect because I think Western society has brainwashed us to believe that The Western uh, definition of success, which, frankly, to me, is a conspicuous consumption narrative, uh, is how you are happy. I think one of the things that happens sort of traditionally for us is, you know, you climb all these peaks, yet you get to the top and you're going, well, what's there? (laughs) And then at some point, you get to a point and go, well, there was nothing there. You know, my purpose in this life is uh, actually, as you pointed out, to be of service, to connect with people, and what ultimately gives individuals happiness is this idea of being of service to the other. And I think that's huge, and I think uh, it is, uh, if you will, uh, occurring at a younger age. The problem, of course, is that by the time you reach your horizon, you're much older, have a lot more experience, and have learned a lot of things. While I think, sadly, with a lot of young people, they're experiencing these feelings, but they don't necessarily know how to appropriately respond or have the resilience that experience brings, and this impacts them and uh, causes loneliness and fear.
1: Yeah, and I think if we if we solve that problem earlier, right, then I think you wouldn't see the traditional dip that we are seeing now in happiness, in midlife. But you're absolutely right. You know, we're we're in the midst right now of what's being called the Great Resignation, right? People are leaving their jobs in record numbers, and for most of them, it's not because they want more money or higher status. It's they're saying, you know, what. Is this the way I want to be spending my time? Maybe I want to do something more meaningful. And maybe this has shown me that there's a way to do it, right? By by having me lose my job or work remotely, it may be a, it may be a short-term difficulty, but it may be freeing me up to find a better way.
0: No, no, I, I think that's absolutely correct. Do you think the incorporation of some of these uh, rituals or perhaps... Connecting to religious practice, then will give these individuals sort of—I I, I don't mean to say a leg up, but actually protect them from some of the things we're talking about.
1: Yeah, I, I, I do. In fact, you know, it's interesting because in addition to the Great Resignation, although not not at the same rate, but over the past. Few decades, we've been seeing a move away from traditional religion. Um, last year was the first year since Gallup started measuring in in, 19, in the 1930s, I believe, that the majority of Americans reported not belonging to a church, a temple, or a mosque. And people are leaving traditional faith with, often with good reason, right? I mean, there have been institutional scandals and of abuse and financial scandals, gender discrimination, et cetera. Um, but the important thing there is that there's a difference between the institution and the practices of themselves. Um, and I think the people who are leaving the institutions, most of them aren't becoming strident atheists. They're calling themselves nuns, right? N-O-N-E-S, which is none of the above. Um, but they're looking for new ways to be spiritual because I think in some in some way they're, when they leave the institution, they're recognizing they're also leaving behind these tools that, that bring peace of mind, that bring connection, that help them mark important things in life. And so you know, one of my goals in writing this book was to say, well, this is where science can help us figure out how we can how we can adapt those those practices in, in a respectful way to kind of fill in those gaps, those gaps in life.
0: Well, in some ways, that just gets back to my original comment about
1: hmm. creating, creating a religion. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know it does. It, it, it does, right. Exactly. And, and you know there have been lots of new religions started, the ones that last are the ones, well, either they're, they're picked up by, by somebody who has immense power like an emperor and says, you shall all have this religion. But <laughs> in, in not that case, the ones that last are the ones that speak to people, right? That, that satisfy the needs that people have psychologically. And so, um, yeah, it's an interesting, I mean, th- there have been attempts at secular religion, but they've never paid attention to the science of, of, of ritual. So it'd be interesting to see how they would work building that in. I, I don't know.
0: No, no. I, I think though that's exactly right. Is and
1: and in some ways, maybe what I'm doing with this
0: little gathering of mine, uh, this global compassion the fellowship, is trying to explore that a little bit more to understand, uh, you know, how you can create this vessel that holds ritual, that holds uh, practice, that brings people together, that talks about common topics uh, that affect all of us.
1: Yeah, I mean the one the one danger inherent in this. Is that things can become too tailored, right? So, like, let's say, you know, a person finds the perfect new religion that speaks to them. You know, seventy-five percent Hinduism, twenty percent Muslim. Take this ritual from <laughs> right. Sikhism, right? There has to be some level of community buying. If it becomes too ideographic, right, then it's you become a church of one, which which can have its own problems. So, I think you're right, right? You 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 have to figure what's What's the right mix that a community can get behind?
0: Well, uh, you know, I think one of the reasons you have these different religions, though, is you have, unfortunately, humans involved. You know, that's what I always say. I mean, things work, whether it's an ism, communism, (laughs) whatever, they all work great until humans are involved. (laughs) And this is the problem is, you know, on, on the surface, a particular practice or religion may sound, oh, wow, this is amazing. But, you know, there's a subset of people who find the rules or the ritual excessive and they can't do them and they fall out. Or, as often happens, uh, we see hypocrisy uh, that is uh, in contrast to the word. And, you know, that bothers a lot of people. In fact, certainly that's one of the reasons people uh fall away from religion. So uh, if we're talking about creating one, it has to be loose enough <laughs> to yeah. attract a lot of people, but it has to be constrained enough where actually yeah. people want to be part of the club, if you will.
1: Yeah. That's why to me, I think I think in some ways, because of that reason, there's not going to be one, but for whatever set of beliefs that, that your community has, I think what's important and what science can do is is, is help you understand how the different rituals work. So I mean, so you- you live in Silicon Valley. So, you know, one of the big things out there now is ritual design. There's all these ritual design firms. You want a ritual for starting a new startup, we'll create you one. But the the problem is, right, you can't just throw stuff together. If you think about what these rituals are, is they are, you can think about them as debug technologies, right? Over millennia, they have been pieced together to provide good outcomes. So like when we we talk about sitting Shiva, right, you know, not only it, it, it works on what you're seeing, on what you're feeling, on leveraging your body and all of these things. And if you're just trying to put some stuff together, it's hard to know that. So I think it's always important to look to the wisdom of the traditions that have been used before. And sure, they can be adapted, but don't just assume you can just create something new but the other part of that i want to i want to address something you said you know things like hypocrisy etc is i am in no way an apologist for religion so when i start talking about this work a lot of my scientific friends will say dave don't you know religions have done all these bad things they've started wars and and been used to justify all kinds of discrimination i'm like yes that that's true but what I'm talking about is the practices themselves. And if you think about them as tools or technologies, they can be used for good or for ill. It depends upon the intentions of the people using them. Same for science, right? You know, Richard Dawkins himself has said, if, if, if you want to find the most efficient way to kill the most people, science is your friend. If you want to find the way to help people beat COVID, science is your friend. These are powerful tools, and you have to think about them as separate from the intentions that, that we humans, as you said, with good or bad intentions, have, have used them for.
0: Well, you know, again, uh, I, I think the other problem is, as I was saying, uh, you know, on the one hand, humans have great potential uh, for positive impact, and the other, of course, they have extraordinary potential for negative impact. And in fact, mm-hmm. you know, we're seeing this in society with issues related to climate change. Uh, so, you know, again, h- how do we harness our best selves, which I think continues to be a dilemma for many of us, because even in our personal lives, I'm I, certainly speaking for myself, you know, you're this mix of um, contradictions, right? <laughs> you know, on the one hand, <laughs> you're trying to do your best, but then on the other hand, you say, well, I'm going to go a little bit faster because I need to get somewhere. And, you know, so you keep bouncing back and forth between, uh, you know, trying to be something honorable and good versus mm-hmm. uh, the things that within us, if you will, are our shadow that keeps us from doing that.
1: Yeah. But here again, I think that's where we can look to the wisdom of these practices for, for tools. So, you know, talking about climate change or just kind of being being ethical and foresighted in general, one of the things that we have to do as a society, as individuals, is to be willing to sacrifice for the greater good. And, you know, that's been a problem throughout history. And I think in some ways, what you'll see is, is, is tools that religion has that make us do this. You know, they'll tell us, be fair, be honest, be kind, all of which requires me to sacrifice in the moment to help other people and myself in the future. Um, One thing in my lab that we study is um, the emotion gratitude. And we have seen over and over again that when we have people feel gratitude and we induce it in lots of ways, we induce it by having people do this task that then goes terribly wrong and they don't wanna do it again and somebody helps them fix the problem. But we also do it in ways where we ask people to kind of count their blessings. And some people will write about thanking God for what they have, some about their parents, some about their friends. But the effects are always the same. It encourages people to be more foresighted, to have more patience, to be willing to sacrifice more, to share more, to cheat less. And so what you see, right, is when people are feeling grateful, they are more willing to sacrifice for the greater good. And so what do Christians do every day? Well, around the table, they they say grace, right? Which is a way of, of having gratitude. What do Jews do every morning? They say the moda'ani prayer, which is thank you God for returning me to this earth. Now, if you can actually do these practices, not rotely, but with intention, if you can actually cultivate more regularly within your life feelings of gratitude, and we have data on this, not, not based on, on religion, but people who feel gratitude more frequently throughout their lives, are more patient, are more foresighted, are willing to sacrifice more for people. If you can engage with these practices daily and cultivate that emotional state, what it will do is emotions change what we what the brain values, and therefore it becomes easy to say easier to say, okay, I'll pay a little more for cleaner energy, or yes, I will go and recycle this rather than just take the easy way out and throw it down wherever. Um, and so I think there are tools there that we could we could leverage if we if we study how to do that more
0: well in some ways of course part of this is a habit right that Mm -hmm. uh, gets ritualized if you will and i I think the other part is as you mentioned is setting your intention Uh, you know i find for myself going through my own practice each morning of which gratitude is part of it if i set my intention in the morning and then at some point throughout the day try to repeat my intention then that sets sort of the whole mood uh, being different than if if I did not, because, uh, you know, the nature of real life, uh, uh, as talking about the good Samaritans who are rushed, that's all around us all the time. And when you repeatedly reset your intentions, I think it keeps that in the moment versus getting lost in
1: what you think is important. That's right. In fact, in in Judaism there's this practice of of the 100 blessings a day where you are supposed to not everybody does this. Most most people don't. <laughs> but most people don't. But, it, but it's exactly that. It's as you go throughout your day it's it's giving a a blessing of gratitude, thank you for that I have this food, thank you that I that I have these clothes. There's even one for, you know, thank you for letting me go to the bathroom successfully. I kid you not. But <laughs> but it, it the, I, the, use, the, I, I I didn't even know that and I use yeah, it all the time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But you know, but but the idea, right, realistically is that is that what you're doing is every opportunity 100 times a day, right, metaphorically, is you're realizing that you have food, that you have clothes, that there are things that 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 you might not have in life if you weren't fortunate. Um and you're resetting that intention of gratitude not just with a prayer at dinner, not just with one intention in the morning. Because you're right. In our day-to-day life, our emotional lives are changing dramatically based on where we are, what we're seeing, what traffic we're in, who's arguing with us, whatever it might be. And having a ritual that repeatedly resets that intention and that emotion can be hugely beneficial.
0: No, I think that's exactly right. You know, one of the things that I think uh, this can help with is this idea of understanding also how an individual's reaction or response has nothing to do necessarily with the event that's happening right now. And what I mean by that is there are many things in our modern world that impact us and they go into our subconscious and we become very reactive. And then, of course, when you are that way, this then uh, affects the other person which, of course, causes a negative reaction. But when you're able to, as an example, repeat with gratitude or other uh, ideas related to recognizing another's suffering, understanding them and what's affecting them, and then uh, you know it gets back to this quote attributed to Viktor Frankl, which is between stimulus and response, there is a pause, and within that pause lies your freedom. And what I mean by that is, if you were practicing the right intention, then the verigrees of life
1: are not impacting you nearly uh, as they normally would. I think that's exactly that's exactly right. I mean, one of the things we study in my lab, just to concretize this, right, is how an emotion you're feeling for one reason affects a decision you're making in some other realm, for which that emotion has no nothing really relevant to do. And so being able to kind of deconstruct those in that moment of freedom, right? That's that's part of what what mindfulness's goal is, is to is to see that feeling and then to recognize it and then to let it pass or to not act on it or assume it's intrinsic to what you're doing can have a profound impact on not letting us be kind of slaves to what we're feeling, but to kind of set our own direction.
0: Yeah. And I think, you know, that is one of the greatest aspects of learning some of these practices and how they can benefit you in daily life, because so many of us are controlled by emotions that are at a subconscious level that we get attached to, and we don't appreciate that they affect every aspect of our life. So what would you say are the three biggest things we can get from this book? <laughs> uh...
1: I'm not trying to put you on the spot. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I mean, I would say so. So the first thing I would say is is intellectual humility, and that's and that's on both sides. So I start the book, and it's funny, you know. I'm harkening I'm back to what you were saying before. You know, all, all humans have their isms, and our isms, in this case, in religion, Catholicism, Buddhism, Judaism, atheism they end up basically preventing us from working together, right? That is, we start arguing about these things to which there is no answer. My God is right. There is no God, whatever it may be. And so what I'm encouraging people to do is is, everybody's ism is to be respected, but put your ism to the side. We all care about, at least most of us should, care about making life better for people. Let's have an open mind. And let's have some intellectual humility. If you're a scientist, have some humility to, to think that these ancient tra- traditions may have some knowledge. If, if you're a religious person that don't normally really think about science that well, have a little humility to think about, well, science is something to offer. You know, if you believe that God created us, well, God gave us then this power to discover all these wonderful things. So let's let's use that to make life better. And I, and I think to the extent that we can put our, our isms aside, we can have more fruitful conversations and and work better together so that's that's one my other favorite is one of my other favorites is it is important to actually engage in a practice of gratitude because you find this in all in almost all religions and the reason why is you know cicero once said that gratitude is a parent virtue, meaning that it gives rise to many others. And the science is there to back that up. If you cultivate gratitude in your life, you will be more generous. You will be more fair. You will be more patient. You will be more kind. This isn't pie in the sky stuff. There's all empirical data to back this up. And so whether you... Do that by engaging in prayers of gratitude, or whether you do that by just engaging in gratitude journaling or cultivating it in a very secular way for what you have, that will bring you benefit. The last one is to is to look for connections with other people. One one way is that these spiritual practices always you know enhance our well being, physical and mental, is by reinforcing our our relationships with other people. And one way to do that is is to have compassion in the practice empathy and, and, and to be the first to reach out to other people in need, which hopefully then they will reach back out to you and it will form kind of a, a virtuous cycle of, of support. So meditation is one way to build your compassion, but there are other ways as well. And so I urge you just to, to find connection and compassion for others and with others. That is one way, one route by which religions help people live longer, healthier, happier lives, but you can do that uh, in, in, in secular contexts as well. Again, thank you for
0: being with us today The Into the Magic Shop podcast can be found Where you find your most popular podcasts Or you can find us at IntoTheMagicShop.com